0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. Today on the Health Report, what needs to change, particularly in hospitals, to avoid the myriad of problems associated with the use of opioids, things like Endone and Tramadol, a cause of indigestion and acid reflux that you really don't want to ignore, the millions of dollars that could be saved in the treatment of one of the commonest causes of blindness, And I know you're probably fed up with this pandemic, but an increasing number of experts think the next one could come upon us long before we expect it. And one reason is climate change, with its effects on ambient temperatures and extreme weather events. Last week, a group of researchers published a paper in the prestigious journal Nature, showing how, with climate change, as animals move to different habitats, they meet new animals they haven't experienced before and share their viruses. With the risk that new ones emerge... And spillover to humans one of the authors is colin carson who's in the center for global health science and security at georgetown university in washington dc i spoke to him earlier
2: we're trying to get at something really quite simple in this study which is that climate change is restructuring ecosystems it's it's putting animals in new places and we're trying to figure out what that means in terms of where they'll bring viruses
1: and then you did some modeling to look at the extent to which animals will move or are moving with that's right. temperature and change in the sea level rise
2: that's right so we've basically been running simulations on and off for about three years first we look at where species habitats are going to move to in terms of temperature in terms of you know do they need to live in a place with forests in it you know things like that so we simulate that over the next 50 years and then we look at when species get where they're going how they'll share viruses with each other and and how that might lead to disease emergence.
1: And what have you concluded?
2: It's pretty grim. So most animals are going to have to move a little bit. And that means that most animals are going to meet at least somebody new they've never met before, which means that there is a pretty massive change probably already happening in mammals in terms of their viruses. And that's bad news for us. We think about this a little bit like how... SARS jumped from bats to civets to humans in a wildlife market. What we're looking at is viruses making those kinds of jumps really at a planetary scale over the next 50 years.
1: And you've suggested that the rate of transmission is going to increase 4,000 times.
2: Yeah, so what we think will happen is at least 4,000 pairs of species are going to share at least some viruses. Now that could be just one virus or it could be everything that they're infected with. So it's quite a massive change when you think about the fact that there's only about 6,000 mammals, right? So we are, we are talking about a total restructuring of which species have which pathogens.
1: And is it mostly bats?
2: So bats are kind of at the heart of this and it's, it's an unexpected pattern. We're used to thinking about bats as special in terms of disease. You know, we, we think that they have these kind of special adaptations that let them host very dangerous viruses and, and maybe not get sick from them. But the bats also do something else quite important, right, which is they fly. And from the vantage point of climate change, that matters quite a lot. The ability to fly into new ecosystems, to go further and faster, really puts bats that at, at the center of this, I think, in quite an unexpected way. Um, But something like 90% of the, the viral sharing that we think might be coming down the road could have to do with bats, which is, again, pretty alarming when it comes to then human health.
1: So at the moment, they've agreed to keep things within 1.5 degrees increase within the century. Most people say that's not going to happen. It's going to be 2 degrees. Is the extent of this sharing inevitable now? You're just predicting the inevitable, or could it reverse?
2: It's a great question. Let's take a step back and think about sort of that that century-long change, right? So we live in a world that's, you know, about 1.1 to 1.2 degrees warmer already. Um, we're on track to blow right past 1.5. Ideally, you know, with with existing commitments, we'd stay under two. But if, if we stayed where we are today, we would have a planet warming by about three degrees by the end of the century, which is quite a lot. What we learned very unexpectedly in our study is that out of that sort of full range of possibility, it's really that first degree of warming that matters the most, because really what we're studying is species meeting for the first time, and a very small amount of climate change can set that in motion. And so what we've found is most of this change has probably already been set in motion. And if we cut greenhouse gas emissions, now don't get me wrong, it'll save millions of lives, it'll save thousands of species from extinction, we have to cut greenhouse gas emissions. But it doesn't get us out of this particular problem.
1: So two questions. Um, the first one mm-hmm. is, do we have any fix on how many of these new viruses, as a result of mingling between species, will be what are called zoonoses, in other words, spillovers able to go into human populations?
2: We think there's probably about, um, let's call it forty to 60,000 viruses in mammals. And out of those, as many as 10,000 could infect humans, right? So, so quite a lot. You know, we only know about two or three hundred of these that currently infect humans. So there's there's quite a lot waiting in ecosystems that could still emerge.
1: Second question is, you've given a fairly somber scenario that's already in mm. place. What can we do about it now?
2: That's a great question. I think there's three things we can do. Uh, the first is we can do the science, right? We can track these viruses in ecosystems. We can try to notice when they show up in new places. And that means that we're better informed. The second thing that we can do is we can try to catch outbreaks in humans earlier. There's a statistic that I think about all the time. One scientist has estimated that we're probably missing about half of all Ebola virus outbreaks. They come and go and we just never notice them. And that is not a present day where we're ready to face something like this, right? So we can build better health systems. And then I I think the last thing is, if we are locked in for this, if this is a climate change impact we're not gonna be able to dodge, I really think we got to hold fossil fuel companies accountable for that. You know, we've had decades to off-ramp from the most dangerous impacts of climate change, and now we're here, right?
1: So a tax on them to pay for the next pandemic.
2: I mean, I, I <laughs> if we're looking for money, right? No, but I mean, I think it's, just, it's, it's part of the reality of living in a warmer world, right? We should be able to look at the things happening around us and say, oh, you know, this is, this is where this came from. Right, and and that might not be true of this pandemic, but it certainly could be true of the next one.
1: Colin, thank you for joining us on the Health Report.
2: Thanks so much.
1: So, do we have to wait for the next catastrophe before we act? Colin Carlson is in the Center for Global Health Science and Security at Georgetown University in Washington D.C., and this is RN's Health Report. I'm Norman Swan. Opioids are highly addictive, morphine-like drugs used to control pain. Some are long-acting, like oxycodone, some are synthetic and pretty potent, like fentanyl, and there are others like tramadol. We in Australia have not experienced the opioid disaster the United States has, which some say has in the US reversed life expectancy gains due to the huge numbers of overdose deaths. Australia has had its problems though and certainly experienced the unethical and unscientific promotion of these drugs by some pharmaceutical companies. Some of you might have seen dopsic um, on Netflix. Hospitals are often where opioid use begins, being prescribed for acute pain following surgery, for example. Last week, the Australian Commission on Safety and Quality in Healthcare released standards on what should be expected with opioid use. Pain medicine specialist Dr. Chris Hayes chaired the group that developed the standards. Welcome to the health report, Chris.
3: Norman, thank you. Good to be here, although slightly alarmed by the content of your previous speaker's word on bats and viruses.
1: Yeah, well, you don't come to the health report for sucker. We we just panic. (laughs) Panic is our coin. How big a problem is this?
3: As you say, a smaller problem than it was in the States, nevertheless substantial. Our rate of opioid-related deaths in Australia has been very similar to the rate of deaths from car crashes In recent years, that being up over a thousand deaths per year. So, a substantial problem, and there are other harms of less severe nature than death. So, certainly in the healthcare sector and at government level, there has been greater regulation in the opioid space because of the deaths and other side effects.
1: So one of the aspects of regulation is you can't buy opioid-linked analgesics over the counter anymore. You've got to get a prescription from your doctor. But you're focusing on the hospital system, aren't you, in this standard?
3: Yes, that's right. I mean, as you point out, the focus over the last few years of regulation has been more on primary care and GPs. And this clinical care standard changes to focus on the hospital system, particularly the inpatient wards and what might happen, for example, after an operation and also in the emergency department. So it is good as we debate how much of the opioid problem stems from hospitals versus how much it might stem from primary care. So, what is good, I think, to see the focus go to the hospitals.
1: So what needs to change that your your standard is going to drive? What are the changes?
3: So one of the nice shifts, I I think, is to inform patients more, so to get better information to the patient and that shared understanding of why a decision has been. I think that is always a good thing. Some other points are to put the onus on the initial prescriber of the opioids, to talk through the likely trajectory with the patient, including how long the intended use is for and the process of stopping the opioid. So it's to avoid perhaps a vulnerable patient might meet vulnerable GP prescriber after discharge from hospital and that turning into long-term opioid prescription. This is very much getting on the front foot early and to say that this opioid might be appropriate for a few days after surgery and then the plan is to stop it.
1: So now, one of the issues are prescribing in too high doses, and also giving people far too much drug to take home with them.
3: Yes, there has been at times in certain hospitals a default practice, perhaps, of giving a standard pack of endone five milligram tablets, twenty of those tablets to take home from the emergency department or the surgical ward, irrespective of how much they've been using or their pain intensity at the time so the standard looks to dig into that a little and say that the amount given at discharge from hospital should be relevant to how much pain the person has and how much they've used in the last 24 hours if they've been on a hospital ward, for example.
1: Now, there's an epidemic of uh, knee replacements going on in Australia and hip replacements. These are, these are operations, particularly knee replacements, that are notorious for long-term pain. Now, if you start to say to people, well, we're going to really limit your, um, your opioids, you might get a set of panic going in. Do we manage pain properly? In other words, beyond just the opioids?
3: I think part of the focus of this report also is to look at the more multidisciplinary or multidimensional aspects of pain rather than just relying on the opioid. And I think the evidence is fairly clear that the opioids can play a helpful role, but are just one of a broad range of aspects to that. So particularly getting the right amount of physical loading of the tissues after the surgery as well as addressing any psychological aspects that are going on, as well as in a small number of patients addressing other problems. If there is a background of drug dependency or addiction in the picture, that needs to be managed via the appropriate pathways. But the emphasis of this clinical care standard was very much on providing good pain relief uh, with safety. So it means just looking at the individual aspects of the Patient situation and adjusting treatment accordingly. So the desire is certainly not to to, uh, remove good medication from a patient's treatment plan.
1: There's been debate about just how effective opioids are at pain relief and that they're less effective than people might think. And sometimes a combination of paracetamol and ibuprofen can be just as effective. Do we overprescribe to start with and just assume that standard painkillers are not going to work?
3: I think there has been an element of that, and certainly part of this standard is to suggest multimodal from early and also to suggest that opioids aren't always the the default medication of of first choice, so as you Suggest paracetamol and anti-inflammatories can be sufficient analgesic medication for many types of surgery, and especially if it's combined with setting the right expectations and the right amount and the right timing of physical activity post-operatively. In many situations, opioids may not be uh, may not be required at all, especially when you start to look at some of the downsides, like constipation is a. a, a Big problem, I think, that can be nasty in the post operation phase That's and uh, clouded thinking, which also can be not a good thing in that phase.
1: Just briefly, um, how are you going to monitor this? You set out a standard. How do you know if people are going to comply with it?
3: So, this will eventually, I'm not quite sure the time frame of this actually, but the intention is this is eventually built into accreditation standards for hospital. I don't think that's happening in the next year or two as this is bedded down, so to speak.
1: So it's one of the things that the hospital will be judged on?
3: Yeah, there will be a number of indicators that have been listed in this standard that a hospital can be judged on by external accreditors. So hospitals will, over time, be uh, required to report on a number of these indicators.
1: Chris, go back to panicking about climate change. Nice to speak to you.
3: Thanks, Norman. Good to chat. Bye.
1: Pain medicine specialist, Dr. Chris Hayes, and we'll have a link to those standards on the Health Reports website. Two specialists writing in the Medical Journal of Australia last week described a disease that they claim has increased exponentially in the last 20 years and which can be confused for common or garden indigestion and acid reflux. It's called eosinophilic esophagitis and it could be you if you have reflux which isn't being helped by the usual acid reducing treatments. One of the authors was Associate Professor Peter Catalaris who heads the gastroenterology department at Concord Hospital in Sydney. Welcome to the Health Report Peter.
0: Thanks, Norman. Nice to be here.
1: What's the common story that you get from someone who might have eosinophilic esophagitis?
0: The common story is a person who has difficulty in swallowing. We call that dysphagia, when the food um, either doesn't go down easily and needs to be helped along or brought back up, or in fact gets stuck. So people with this problem who don't have it recognised often live with that sort of symptom for a long time before it's uh, appropriately diagnosed.
1: And what about the symptoms of of reflux itself?
0: Well, that's interesting. Ears esophagitis is a great mimicker, and it can mimic uh, typical common reflux, as as you mentioned. So people can have heartburn and regurgitation and chest pain. Um, Normally, people with reflux don't get too much of that dysphagia, but they can get that as well. So really, it requires a medical evaluation to distinguish the two. And to make it uh, more complex, they do overlap. In other words, reflux is really very common as a condition, and eosinophilic esophagitis is becoming more common. So they often coexist. So they, they while one's a mimic of the other, they also coexist. So it really needs to be sorted out medically, and, and that's not so difficult to do once it's thought about.
1: But you talk, uh, you, you talk in the paper about how this is underdiagnosed. But difficulty swallowing is is a red light for any doctor seeing some seeing a patient.
0: Well, it sure is, especially if it happens in someone uh, after a certain age and it's a new onset symptom. But people with this problem often have a long history of just saying every now and then something gets stuck or uh, they're always the last to finish their dinner or they're chewing very slowly and they're just managing it. So it's less of a red flag if it's been present for years, but it's certainly a red flag for something very serious if it's just occurred. So what's actually going on? So what's happening is we think this is an allergic problem. And we think the trigger is usually something um, people eat. Uh, So it's usually related to some food substance, although there's a theory that it might also be an inhaled substance, what we call an aeroallergen. But mostly we think it's uh, a reaction So it's like a gastroenterological
1: version of asthma.
0: Yeah, it is in a way, because um, withdrawing uh, agents that are known to offend to, to trigger this can be a treatment, although not as good as medical therapy. And what happens when people are exposed, if they're susceptible, and it is normally people who have ATP of some sort, hay fever or asthma, is that their esophagus or food pipe gets infiltrated by allergy cells. That's the eosinophils uh, in the name of the disease. And that alters the way the esophagus works so that food doesn't go down easily. The esophagus's motility is altered.
1: So do you have to have an, uh, an endoscopy to diagnose it?
0: Yes, there's no other way. It can be suspected just on symptoms, but you really do have to have an endoscopy. And the endoscopist has to be aware of the condition and not just look, but also take biopsies along the esophagus. And it's the characteristic pathology on the biopsies that gives the diagnosis.
1: So how do you know what the cause might be? Or is that too hard?
0: Well, it always is too hard, but I guess the best evidence relates to what happens when we um, uh, exclude certain foods from people's diets, and some people get better, and then if they're re-challenged, they can relapse. And that makes us think that in most people, it is an allergic response to certain foods. The trouble is, there's a lot of foods that can trigger it, and it's very hard to exclude those foods long-term, and that's why medical treatment is preferred over long-term dietary exclusions.
1: Does it predispose to cancer in the same way as, well, it's controversial, but acid reflux is thought to predispose to cancer?
0: Well, fortunately, no, it doesn't. Reflux certainly does predispose to cancer, but the overall risk uh, is very small. But EOE, as we call it, um, is not thought to share that predisposition. The real issue is that it greatly affects people's quality of life because they're scared to eat or can't have certain foods. And there's the danger of food impaction, which can be quite dangerous, And if it's left untreated, the esophagus can stiffen and narrow. So there's now a structural chronic problem that needs, you know, endoscopic dilatations to improve it. So it's not a trivial illness and uh, it certainly has been under-recognized up until recently.
1: And, And so, in other words, the increase is probably along with the general increase in allergies in the community. How do you treat it?
0: Well, the treatment uh, is one of two options. We've mentioned food exclusion, but only a small minority of people are willing or able to persevere with that. And the results are moderate rather than good. The mainstay of treatment is uh, taking a type of topical steroid that's not absorbed into the whole body. So there's very, very few side effects. And it's like a topical therapy because steroids uh, make eosinophils melt away. And that type of treatment uh, is very effective. So
1: this is like the inhaled corticosteroids that you take to prevent asthma.
0: It's interesting you mention that because up until very recently, we actually had to repurpose asthma treatments because there wasn't a purpose designed way of getting that exact same medicine into the esophagus. So we used to teach patients how to have a bad asthma technique with their puffers to get it into their esophagus.
1: So swallowing the puffer rather than inhaling it.
0: Yeah, but now there's just uh, recently been the development of an oral dispersible form of that medicine, which is so much easier for patients to take. So they just put a little tablet on the tongue and it dissolves and that goes down to the right place without any repurposing of of asthma medication. And that's been a big change.
1: So for a health report (laughs) listener who think they might have this, have a chat with your GP and uh, get an endoscopy.
0: Oh, very much so. It's, it's a tolerably easy diagnosis. Once it's considered, uh, then the management is long term, but the diagnosis is not difficult if it's thought about.
1: Peter, thanks for joining us. <clears throat> it's a pleasure. Associate Professor Peter Catalaris is head of the gastroenterology department at Concord Hospital in Sydney. About 50% of Australians who experience blindness and severe vision loss do so because of a condition called age-related macular degeneration, AMD. It's a group of diseases affecting the retina at the back of the eye. Some people are able to have the progress to blindness slowed or halted by eye injections of a medication which stops blood vessels proliferating. The bill for taxpayers for this medication is going up by about 9% per year and amounts to nearly $700 million. million. Yet there is a safe, effective alternate medication which costs a fraction of the existing medication, yet isn't being used very much at all. Which is ironic, since the government has been suggesting that Medicare benefits might be reduced for this procedure, presumably to save money. An eye surgeon who's angry about this waste is Dr. Peter Hayworth, a consultant ophthalmologist in Western Australia and a board member of Lishman Health Research, a not-for-profit focusing on improving the health of regional and remote Australians. And Peter recently published a paper arguing for change. Welcome to The Health Report, Peter. Thank you. This is a programme full of Peters today. So the irony here is that both drugs have been manufactured by the same company, at least until recently.
4: Yeah, the first two were, um, and they, in fact, is a very interesting story because whilst the drug companies, the original drug was used for treating colorectal cancer, and as you say, it blocks. It's called uh, Bevacizumab. Yeah, uh, Avastin is the trade name. And a very clever and enterprising ophthalmologist at the Baskin-Palmer sort of saw that this was a good drug, and so he knew the drug companies were going to try and make it a bio better, sort of change the molecule so it's more specific. But in the meantime, his patients were going blind, so he went to his local ethics committee and got approval to start injecting the bevacizumab, the original parent molecule, uh, into these patients. And while it took the time for all the other studies to go through the phases of of, of study and investigation, uh, he built large numbers. And now we've got a database of very large numbers of the uh, cheaper drug, the bevacizumab, uh, against the two drugs which have followed. And there have been two Pivotal studies, which have shown that uh, they're not only both as effective in most, and I do hasten to add that it is most, and there are some caveats to that, cases, uh, and that the safety profile is similar. Uh, and and The history inferior. is
1: interesting here, is that despite the evidence that bevacizumab works, the manufacturer refused to um, do a trial of it when, in uh, in a, macular degeneration and only did the trial on their new drug which they could charge the higher price for
4: yeah and that is you know that is the right for company to seek profit i you know that is uh, part of why business is there but i think what is has been a a, a shame and is a, a fault in the system is that here we have a drug which has been used off label and that's where the whole problem comes because it's not had a clinical
1: trial proving that it works exactly, because the exactly. drug company hasn't sponsored a trial
4: Correct. And the in fact, if you look at all the trials, the CAT and the IVAN studies, those are publicly funded trials, which I think is a very important point of difference. Anyway, those studies, as I say, show no, show no difference. And so uh, it, it really is uh, a problem. And actually, just to sort of give an example as, as well, as everyone assumes that if you make the molecule better and tidier and cleaner, you're going to get a better product. But actually, there was recently another drug which was uh, engineered as a biobetter, and ended up producing twice as much blindness as the former drugs. Uh, so it's not quite so simple. It's not a simple ride down the road. And the problem is, is that vastin is now being withdrawn from the Australian market. So we're going to use another biosimilar for which there's much less data. Uh, and so we need to get around that. Um, and I think we need to change, there needs healthcare reform, and we need to change the way we assess these drugs.
1: Now, this costs about a 20th. So essentially, you get the beverages One and, you, and you dilute it down, and you give, uh, and, and you give a, basically you buy it in a job lot and then you, you dilute it down. And give it, so it's a 30th. Right. So, how much money would be saved if we transferred to this drug? Uh,
4: if you did it to all the cases, and that's a little bit Alice in Wonderland, but if you did it to all the cases, the, the drug bill would be 20 million instead of 700. And that's not realistic. Um, I think a far more realistic approach is to do what countries like the Netherlands, Canada, New Zealand, Israel, uh, Singapore have done, and that is to say that bevacizumab is the first-line drug. And so long as patients continue to do well on it and the, the treatment intervals, these drugs have to be injected up to eight times a year in age-related macular disease, sometimes more often, but so long as those intervals are acceptable, then you carry on with the cheaper drug by all means, have a more expensive drug available when those drugs don't you know, perform as well. And that's what we do currently, even with a good drug, so about 5% of them don't work, and you actually switch.
1: Now, whenever I've, I've covered this story before, and whenever I've asked eye surgeons about this, they say, well, well, first of all, it's neither here nor there for eye surgeons, you get paid to do the injection, the drug is paid for by the pharmaceutical benefit scheme with a contribution from the patient but the eye surgeons say to me well you know why what's in it not so much what's in it for me but why should i take the risk of an off-label drug when there's an approved one it's the government's problem to actually um save money
4: well i agree it is the government's problem but also i think we need to review our hippocratic oath and that is that we uh we aim to treat the patient as an individual, but also we aim to treat society as a whole. And if you deny society of 600, 500 odd million of dollars of your taxpayer money, uh, that is denying people people other eye treatments that are long waiting lists, for example, for cataracts. Or other forms of technology in the country. We struggle to get patients with AMD seen. We struggle to buy the laser machines to, to scan their eyes. Um, so you know. why
1: doesn't the College of Ophthalmologists agitate for this? Because they don't seem to be.
4: I believe they have. And I oh, think they have? I'm you, sorry. They have. They have. Um, but I think you're dealing with um, a rather asymmetric uh, situation in which Big Pharma has enormous lobbying power. Um, in fact, in the United States, Big Pharma has uh, more lobbying power than the top five other lobbyists. And it amounts to about 400,000 US dollars per senator. Uh, and so, so there's one area we're dealing with. The other area we're dealing with is that pharma, pharmaceutical companies uh, own their own data. And we've always thought that what is published in peer review journals is utterly clean uh, data. But you only have to look at some notorious uh, scandals in the past uh, to see that's not necessarily the case. And I think we need to have a a, a referee here, like NICE, the National Institute of Clinical Excellence in the United Kingdom, and similar bodies in New Zealand and elsewhere, to actually... To make a
1: clinical recommendation that people can follow. Well, yeah, hard to do in the current situation. We did ask the federal government for a comment. And they, um, I don't think they understood the, the, the question because we're in an election. Thank you very much well, for your time, Peter. <laughs>
4: okay, many thanks.
1: Dr. Peter Hayworth is a consultant ophthalmologist in Western Australia. This has been the Health Report. I'm Norman Swan. See you next week.
3: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.